we do want to welcome you today to Journey Church International. If you have your Bible, you might uh, grab it and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you do not have your Bible, uh, our ushers are going to come down the aisle at, uh, at our church. One of our values, our big values, is, uh, is reading the Bible, studying the Bible. So if you forgot your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, just wave at the ushers. They'll give you one so that uh, you can study our text with us today. And uh, feel free, if you don't have a Bible, keep this. This is yours. We're glad to, uh, to give you one. Uh, if you do have one and maybe you just forgot yours today, you can throw this on the ushers' table uh, when you leave. But uh, we're going to be studying in 1 Thessalonians, actually two different chapters today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, you should have been handed when you walked in uh, some sermon notes so that you could take some notes as, uh, as you follow along this morning, uh, and a pen so you can write some things down. You may want to write some stuff down. You may not want to write some stuff down. You may want to make your grocery list because you find this message boring, but uh, you should have a pen and paper, whether you want to play hangman with your neighbor or take notes, that's up to you, but uh, the stuff is in your hand. Would you believe it? Especially those of you who, um, who are around my age, would you believe that this year, 2012, is the 25th anniversary uh, of the REM, REM song, uh, It's the End of the World, uh, as we know it? Are any of you familiar with that song? You know, I, I actually looked up the lyrics um, because I was going to read them to you, but they make no sense at all. If you remember that song, it's like, it's the end of the world. And then the next verse is like, I mean, it's just, you can't even understand what it says. But this year is the 25th year since that song came out. It was written in 1987, released in 1987 by R.E.M. And we were kind of at the, at the crisis, at least at that point in world history, uh, anyway, of, uh, of, of what we would call World War III. I mean, crisis on a global scale, the heart of the Cold War. Uh, in the uh, Reagan administration. Uh, the Berlin Wall had not yet fallen yet. That would happen in 1989. And the world was kind of on edge wondering if the world was going to end. Well, it didn't end 25 years ago. And it hasn't ended yet, but it might end soon. You know, it's interesting. We find ourselves in the year 2012, uh, which in the Mayan calendar, I've been studying a little bit, is, is a pretty big deal. Because according to the Mayans, 5,000 years ago, uh, December 21st, 2012 is, is the last day of human existence before this world is destroyed and a new world comes into being. Now, not all the Mayans believe that, uh, but of all the calendars in the Mayan civilization, there was only one that was linear, which means it had a start date, start date and an end date instead of circular, which means it just repeated every year like our American calendar repeats every year. Every year there's a new January 1, there's a new December 1, and, and we just keep adding years. There was a Mayan calendar that started 5,000 years ago, and it just, December 21, 2012, was the last day on it. So for years they thought, specifically in a classical era of time from 8090 to 8250, uh, there was this thought that in 2012 the world is going to end and it'll just be over uh, all at once. Uh, and Hollywood kind of picked up on this and made some movies and wrote some books and some good news articles. It's, it's certainly a good piece of conversation. But what's really interesting is the group that talks the most about the end of the world and the group that really made talk about the end of the world mainline universally uh, is the Christian church and, and mostly from the teaching of Jesus. I mean, even if you study the era of, of Mayan civilization when all this came about, it was after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was actually just a few years after John wrote the book of Revelation, which unveils all the end times to us. End times after Jesus and after the church and after the New Testament became a pretty popular thing. And it was a major, this thought of the end of the world was a major thought of Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, you have, believe it or not, prayed for the end of the world. You've prayed that Jesus would bring the end of the world right now. You say, Christian, when, when did we do that? In the New Testament, you hear all the time Jesus talk about his kingdom. And the disciples would ask him, when is your kingdom going to come? And, and he would say, my kingdom is going to be established. This kingdom that he talked about is the eternal end times kingdom. And if you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your... Really? See, every time you pray that prayer, you're praying that the end of the world will come. Some of you need to change that prayer if you're not ready for the end of the world yet. It should be more like, our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, I, like, help me have a good day today on earth as it is in heaven. Because I'm not quite ready for, for it all to be done yet. But this, this thought in the New Testament of the kingdom was about the end of the world. And we see these 12 disciples who, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, if you've not really studied the life of Jesus and the disciples, most scholars believe that only one disciple was older 
than the age of 18. And that would have been the Apostle Peter. They think the rest of them were teenagers. John, the youngest apostle, they think he might have been 13 or 14 when he started becoming one of Jesus' disciples. So Jesus was more youth pastor than pastor. And he had this pack of teenagers that always followed him around. Peter was married, which is why they think he might have been 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, But none of them, as far as we know, while they were disciples, had children. Pretty young men. And they would always ask Jesus questions. He would teach on something, and they'd get away privately and say, that was great. What did it mean? Uh, All his parables. He would teach his parables, and they'd say, man, Jesus, you sure told him, but we don't get it. What, What were you talking about there? And one time, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and it was their first trip to a major city. It'd be like taking teenagers to New York City for the first time. And the disciples were just in awe over everything in Jerusalem. They said, the buildings are so big and the temple is so big. And Jesus said, this is all going to be torn down in the end times. And his disciples said, when? Like, when? When? When, when are the end times? When does this happen? And I won't ask you to turn there, but Matthew chapter 24, if you just want to jot that on your sermon notes, uh, is, uh, is called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, That's Jesus' longest recorded teaching on the end times. He said, this is what the end times is going to be like. Here's when it's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, You know, if you see these things, beware the end is coming. So the end times was a big thing in Scripture, but here's what you need to know. The end times in the Bible were never presented as a scary thing for Christians. Not something to be scared of not something to not want to go through, not something to not want to be around uh, for. The end times were a hopeful thing, uh, unless it was misunderstood that all of us were going to be involved in a cataclysmic global nuclear war. When that's the end times you think about, it's kind of scary. And what happened in the book of Thessalonica, in, in the church of Thessalonica, is that this, this issue of the end times became a matter of confusion. And really, this is what happened in all the church Paul started. Uh, and if you read through the New Testament and you read uh, letters like First and Second Corinthians, those were both written to a single church founded in Corinth. Paul founded it, uh, and then he left it to an associate pastor. He went to start another one. And when they had questions, they would, they would write Paul questions and say, we don't understand this. Uh, and this happened, what should we do? And if you read through the letters, Ephesians was a church at Ephesus. Colossians was a church in Colossae. Galatians was a circle of churches, kind of a group of churches in an area called uh, Galatia. Philippians was the church in Philippi. All these letters were just written to churches, and most of them, the churches have reached out to Paul and said, we don't understand this, what should we do? And Paul would write a letter back. Most letters in the New Testament are filled with issues. This happened, what do we do? And some of them are some crazy issues. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the questions was that the church wrote Paul because Paul had started the church in Corinth. He was there for a year and a half. He preached every day. A lot of people became Christians, but they were kind of still living in their old life. There was a lot of idol worship going on, a lot of cultic stuff. And they wrote Paul a question and said, hey, would a guy join our church who is, uh, who's, who's sleeping with his stepmom who's still married to his dad? Is that Okay. I mean, that's how little these churches knew. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, hey, I heard what was going on. That's probably not a good idea. He said it a little stronger than that, but he's like, you can't, you can't do that. You can't have a guy in your church that, uh, that's sleeping with his stepmom. That's not what Christians do. You can't do that. So in, in the letter to the, Thessalon- the Thessalonians, in, in so far in ver- chapters 1, 2, and 3, we haven't come upon any issues, no questions. Uh, Paul saying, hey, I'm proud of you. Paul saying, hey, I love you. Paul saying, hey, I, I heard things are going well. But we finally find an issue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, something that the Thessalonians were, were freaked out about, were scared about, something they didn't understand. And here was the issue. Paul had gone, he had started the church in Thessalonica, and one of his early messages was to you know, repent, become a Christian. And it was this thought, because the end of the world is near. And because Jesus is coming back. And you need to become a Christian because when Jesus comes back, you want him to take you with him to heaven. And there was this misperception that like Jesus was going to come back next week. And the people in Thessalonica thought, okay, if I become a Christian, Jesus will come back. And here was the misperception. Jesus is going to come back before I die. So we don't have to worry about dying anymore. Well, Jesus didn't come back immediately. Some people in the Thessalonican church started dying. So they asked Paul, what's happening? 
You said if we became Christians, Jesus would come again and he'd take us, but now people are dying. So, like, are they Christians? Are they not Christians? What happens when people die? Like, we're really confused about people dying, and they, they were all up in arms about people dying. And as we read through the early letter, I mean, they had things, I mean, their church was being persecuted. People were being thrown in jail. Paul had been forced out of town. Um, you know, Paul had to leave after three weeks. Uh, people were sick. Now people were dying. I mean, things were going wrong, and they, they were asking Paul, what do we do? Like, what do we do now? What do we do with the people who died. Are we going to die? Are we not going to die? Is Jesus going to come back? Is he not going to come back? And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, just calm down and let me teach you about that. So he teaches them three things that I want to show you today. And and I'm going to give you kind of the quick outline and then we'll read it. Uh, Paul basically says, let me reiterate what I taught to you. And he's going to talk to them briefly today in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2, verses 11 and 12, about life with the Lord. This is what I told you about being a Christian. And then he's going to talk about death with the Lord. Uh, and we'll kind of go through this slowly, but so this is what happens when a Christian dies. You should know this. And then he's going to talk about the day of the Lord, which is what the Bible refers to often as the end times. So a lot of questions for Paul. Paul says, calm down and let's just go over this one more time. Life with the Lord, death with the Lord, day of the Lord. We start in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. We're going to skip verses 3 through 10 only so that we're not reading uh, all morning long and we can get out of here in a timely manner. And then we'll roll through chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 as well. Lessons on the end of the world. What does the Apostle Paul teach us through 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 about the end of the world? Lesson number one, he said, you need to just understand one more time what it means to be a Christian. I want to remind you about life with the Lord. Here's what it means to be a Christian. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, 11 and 12. He says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Keep on doing it. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verses 3 through 10, he talks to him about biblical Christian morality. Verse 11, he says, make it your ambition. I want you to, I want you to see this. This is really interesting. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you'll not be dependent on anyone. Paul says you need to remember life with the Lord. Before we talk about people who have died, what's happening to them, what's going to happen at the end of the world, let me just remind you one more time, keep living for God. And your mindset needs to be, according to Paul, he said you need to live in a way to please God. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this because two weeks ago we, we went over this and it was, I mean, most of the message was talking about live for God. But I will ask you one question for you to ponder. You know, Paul says live your life in a way that pleases God. not going to teach a lot on this, but I'm going to ask a question. This week, did your life please God? That may be a very easy yes for you. That may be a very easy no for you. That might be kind of a mind-boggling, haven't thought about it. Don't know. But Paul says, as a Christian, first and foremost, before we think about dying, before we think about the end of the world, let's think about living. You need to make sure that your life pleases God. Did your life this week please God? Can you look back at maybe one thing you did this week that you would say, you know, I know God would have been really pleased by that. Can you look back at one thing this week where you say, you know what, God probably did not want me to do that. And do you have a whole lot of in-between where you think, you know, I I don't know, I didn't think about it. Maybe God doesn't care. Probably that you have all three of those in your life. You probably did a few things God's really proud of. Probably did a few things you probably shouldn't have done. There's probably a whole lot of stuff that, that's in between and, and it's not going to make or break anything in your relationship with God. But the Bible said, and we talked about in week one, that we should live for God. Paul says, listen, you have to fix your minds. You've got to begin to live for God, not for man. You need to ask God in every situation, God, what do you want me to do here? God, should I do this? God, shouldn't I do this? And Paul says, after you get done living for God, and after you fix your mindset to live for God, he said, you ought to set your ambition. Now, this word ambition is an interesting word. The Webster's Dictionary defines the word ambition as a fervent desire, something you think about all the time, something you dream about, something you desperately want. And Paul said, here should be your ambition. When I talk about living for the Lord, Paul said, your ambition as a Christian should be to win the respect of outsiders. Now, that's really interesting. I read that this week and had to stop and think about that for a while. Paul said, as a Christian, you ought to actually think about living your life in such a way 
that people, and when we talk about outsiders here, people who are not Christians, people who don't go to your church, people who don't even understand Christianity, people who maybe don't worship God, they look at your life and they respect you. Because if you can gain their respect, you can gain their attention. And if you can gain their attention, perhaps you can love them on my behalf, perhaps you can tell them about me, perhaps maybe they'll decide to embrace me and live for me as well. First things first, Paul says they have to hear about you. Then they have to hear right things about you. And he said they'll grow to respect that. Now, I've not seen this happen anywhere better than, a, than an inner city ministry in Los Angeles called the Dream Center. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dream Center, if you've ever been engaged there. You know, one of the, the ministries that our church wants to do, we want to have an inter, a great international mission but we also want to serve in some of America's largest cities and go serve hurting people, New York City, Houston, L.A. Uh, and for about six years, I went to Los Angeles every year with a group of students, and we would minister. There's an area of, of Los Angeles called Skid Row where literally there are more homeless people than any other place in America combined. And the Dream Center is, is a ministry there that it does a lot of things. But one of the things it does is every day it drives downtown and three meals a day will go serve people living in boxes on Skid Row. And you say, now why are these people living in boxes? They're living in boxes because they choose to live in boxes. There are, there are places and missions for them to go. The Dream Center itself uh, bought a, a half a million square foot old hospital. They'll house any, any of them that want to get back on the bus and go sleep in a, in a warm place and have a warm meal can go back to the Dream Center. But they choose to live there because of their drug addiction. And you go down to Skid Row, and literally it's block after block after block lined with people living in boxes uh, that, that are men and women like you and I, uh, with kids like ours, just people who their lives have been overcome by drugs, uh, and they're just drug addicts living on the street. And every day the Dream Center will take these huge white school buses. They've taken school buses, they've painted them white, and they've painted the word Los Angeles Dream Center real big on the side of them. And we would go with groups of teenagers and people take youth ministries from all over the country there and groups of adults go. Uh, and you literally just load up with boxes of food. Uh, and, you know, like they teach you things like, hey, you can't take peanut M&Ms. Most of these people don't have teeth. Their teeth have rotted out. So only plain M&Ms, real soft food. Uh, and we just go, we hang out with people, we pray with people, we pass out food. But it's a very, very, very rough, dangerous place. And, I mean, they make you sign your life away before you can go serve there. And one of the very first times that we went downtown to do this at the Dream Center, we kind of pulled up on the street, and there was a guy who was just in a drug-induced, I mean, just kind of a psychotic break. And we pulled up on the bus, and here I am, a youth pastor, and I've got a dozen, you know, ninth through 12th graders from middle America there with me who have never seen anything like this. And as the bus pulls up, this guy literally starts throwing stuff at the bus, banging on the bus, trying to break windows, you know, telling us, leave, leave, we don't want you here, we don't want your God, we don't want your church. I mean, just flipping out, you know, and I'm telling the bus driver, go, 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 you know, he's going to kill us all, you know, and, and what happened amazed me. Some other guys came out of their boxes off the street, and they literally pulled this guy away and kind of physically assaulted him and told him, leave these people alone, they're here to do good. One drug addict to another. Leave these people alone. They're here to do good. You see, the Dream Center had won the respect of outsiders. And you know, they weren't going to come back to church, and at the time, they weren't going to quit doing drugs. I mean, they would tell us, look, you know, we, we pass out flyers for them to come back to have a warm dinner, to have a shower, to eat, to get into some kind of counseling or rehab. And they would tell us, now, if like someone actually has a, a needle in their hand injecting drugs, don't hand a flyer to that person because you don't want to get poked. And I mean, literally, we would walk up to somebody, and they would be just on the street in broad daylight. The cops don't even go, just shooting drugs. I mean, crack pipes laying around everywhere. You know, I mean, you, 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 know, you want to go up to somebody and say, hey, I, I think, you know, is it, did you dropped your crack, you know, your crack pipe. Do you want to come back to church? I mean, it, this is like the worst area you can imagine being in. And you know what we didn't do? We didn't go down there to tell them that drugs were wrong. They know that. We didn't go down there to tell them that prostitution was wrong. The streets were just littered with prostitutes. That we had to, you know, we'd tell our teenage guys, be very, very, very careful um, because, you know, there, there's these, you know, these prostitutes are on a high. They, they prostitute themselves for, for more drugs. Um, we didn't go down there to tell them they were wrong. We didn't go down to tell them they were sin. We didn't go down to tell them we were addicts. The, they were addicts. We went down to tell them God loves you. They knew what they were doing was wrong. 
We didn't need to protest. I think of some of these idiot churches protesting things. And I think, have you read this verse here about winning the respect of outsiders? You think you're going to win anybody's respect by protesting what they're doing or by screaming at them or telling them they're wrong or by picketing something or taking a stance against someone? Let's just love them. Paul says, hey, listen, live your life in such a way that you win the respect of outsiders. And he tells us to do three things. He said, you need to live a quiet life. You need to mind your business. You know, I have to be honest with you. Christians are the nosiest people that I know. So how do you know? Because they all share their prayer requests about each other with me because I'm the pastor. It's like, man, how do you know so much about everyone? Well, I was talking to Susie, and Susie had talked to Joe, and Joe had talked to Nancy, and Nancy said, and it's like, boy, you really care, don't you? And, and I, you know, Paul says, interesting, Paul said, listen, just mind your own business. Mind your own business. And he said, work with your hands, work hard. So that when people see you and realize a, you're a Christian, they'll respect you. They might not know the songs you sing. They might not care much for church. They might hate organized religion. But they look at you and say, you know what, I respect that person. Because that person cares about people the right way. You know, when, I, when people look at Journey Church International, I hope that they respect our church. Not because of the music we have or our preaching or our teaching, you know, or our signs. But because of the way that we love people. You know, I've lived here since December of 2011, so just over a year now. And I'm beginning to run into people now for the first time in grocery stores and restaurants and coffee shops. When I tell them who I'm with, they say, oh, I heard about your church. And, and here's what brings more joy to my heart than anyone else, uh, than, than anything else. They'll say, I, I heard, uh, man, I heard your church is helping people. Good job. That's the testimony that I want our church to have. I want people in this community to know that we care about the hungry kids in the Lee Summit School District, and we're trying to do something about it. I want the people in our community to know that we have teams of people that every other Saturday serve at Coldwater, and every other Saturday go down to downtown Kansas City and care about people who are hurting in the inner city. I want people to know that our church is a church that supports orphans in Africa, in India, in Romania. I want people to hear about our church, and they might not like our church, they may never come to our church, but I want to win the respect of the people in this community by the way that we're helping hurting people. See, that's what Paul told us to do. In, in living life with the Lord, he said, your life with the Lord needs to draw respect from outsiders so they can see what you're doing and they can respect what you're doing. Life with the Lord. Your ambition should be to win the respect of outsiders. But then Paul said, let's talk about death with the Lord. You're confused about this. You've got some questions about this. Uh, so let's talk about this. And in verses 13 through 16, he's going to cover death with the Lord. Some interesting thoughts he gives us here. He says this, starting in verse 13. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now that word ignorant means lacking knowledge. We don't want you not to know about what it means to die as a Christian. So we want, we want to let you know. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. That was the terminology for die 2,000 years ago. Or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself is going to come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ, people who have died, they are going to rise. They're going to rise again. They're going to live again. First things first, you need to hear this. And I want you to hear this loud and clear for now and for the rest of your life. As a Christian, death is not hopeless. That's the first little message Paul wants us to see here in verse 13. Brothers, we don't want you to lack knowledge about those who died or to grieve like everyone else who doesn't have any hope. He said, Christians have hope. Is death bad? Yeah. Do we want it? No. But is it hopeless? No. Death with the Lord is not hopeless. Why? Because verse 14 says, those who have died in Jesus, if you have your Bibles, I want you to circle that words. We, who, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I want you to circle those words, in him, those two words, in him. Really two key phrases there. With Jesus, you should circle that, and in him, you should circle that. Paul said people who have died as a Christian, 
Listen to me real closely. Here's what he says. They're with Jesus. You say, when? Right now. At the end times? No, right now. Paul says, the people in our lives who have died as Christians, they're with Jesus right now. But two years ago, my grandmother died. My grandfather was a pastor of more than 60 years. They were married for 62 years. You say, where's your grandmother right now? According to the Bible, she is with Jesus. I've had friends and relatives die. I've done more funerals than I've wanted to of Christian people who have died. You say, well, where, where are they? They're with Jesus. When? Right now. Say, so how do you know that? Because that's what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, great verse, Paul says we are fully confident. What's that mean? He says we have no doubt. We have absolutely no doubt that to be away from these earthly bodies is to be at home with the Lord. We believe that when we leave this body, we go to be with Jesus. So how long does it take? It's immediate. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I say this at about every funeral that I ever do. It literally, if, if you inhale on earth and die, you exhale in heaven. In an instant, you're with Jesus. You see, these Thessalonican folks were worried that their moms and their dads and their brothers and their sisters, and I'm sure some of them, their sons and their daughters and their neighbors and their co-workers had died. And, you know, they were Christians, and we didn't think Christians were supposed to die, and we thought Jesus was going to come back. And Paul said, wait, 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 wait. Don't be afraid. They're with Jesus. They're not here anymore, but they're with Jesus. You say, well, can you prove it? Well, Paul certainly thought you could prove it. His proof was Jesus, according to Scripture. He said, we believe that Jesus died, and he rose again. So we believe that people who die in Jesus rise again. They don't stay dead forever. You know, in, uh, in April, Pastor David Cole and I will be in Israel for about six days. And we're meeting with three different organizations in Israel uh, to figure out how to plant a church. We believe that God wants our church to plant a church in Israel. Uh, and we're meeting with three different organizations from Tel Aviv almost all the way up to the Lebanese border and back down to Jerusalem. Uh, and we're going to go there and do some work. But, I, you know, I told Dave, I said, Dave, I've never been to Israel. I said, are we going to see any sites? He said, we'll see some. And I said, I want to see the empty tomb because that one is the most important to me. Uh, because where Jesus walked on water, it's cool, but it's not a life changer. Uh, and where Jesus, you know, fed the 5,000, it's cool, but it's not a life changer. Uh, you know, where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, cool, but not a life changer. But that empty tomb, if he really rose from the dead, that changes everything. Because that means one day I'll raise from the dead. You see, death in the Lord is not a bad thing for those people who have trusted Jesus as Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Here's what Paul said our, our trust and our belief in our Christianity is based on. He says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Remember the, gospel, the word gospel means good news. Here's the good news which you received and on which you've taken your stand. You believe. By this gospel, by this good news, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, You've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul says Jesus died and he was buried, but he rose again. And because of that, one day if we place our faith in him, when we leave this world, we're going to be with Jesus. Death in the Lord is, is not something to be afraid of. It's not something to be in vain. You say, Christian, do you believe that? I do. I do. I really believe that Jesus came, that he was real, that he ministered, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he rose again. And one day, I'll have eternal life because of Jesus. You say, do you believe that? I really do. You say, Christian, can you prove that? No, I can't. I wish I could. But that's where the Bible says that faith steps in. Now, I don't want to say I don't have any good reason for it. I've got a lot of good reason for it. But can I prove that God exists? No. You know, every now and then, especially in youth ministry, you have a lot of kids that want to debate you. You know, and I'd have kids that would say to me, prove that God exists. And my answer always to them was the same thing. Prove he doesn't. Now, since neither one of us can do that, let's start talking about what history and what reason and what faith uh, and what archaeology have to say. 
I mean, I'd like to go introduce you to God, but we would both have to die in order to do that. And, you know, that, that might be a tough introduction if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet. But, no, I can't prove it, but I believe it. Why do I believe it? Well, Jesus proved that he had the ability, the power, to raise life from dead. You say, where was that? John eleven forty one through 42. And he actually, the only reason he raised Lazarus from the dead was to prove to people that he could do it. Look at his prayer. So he, he goes to Lazarus, John eleven forty one through 42 goes to his grave. He's been in the grave four days. And he says, take away the stones. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. Now I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. God, I'm getting ready to raise Lazarus. And you know that I can do this, but I'm going to pray out loud and I'm going to do this for all these people so they can know that I'm going to raise Lazarus. Because if they'll believe in me, one day I can raise them. You know, it's interesting, the early church consisted of not only Scripture, but of creeds. Creeds were statements of faith. And if you've grown up in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church really does a much better job of preserving the creeds than the Protestant Church does. But both of them are based on the same creeds, specifically the Nicene Nicene Creed that, that in AD 325 all the church leaders came together and they said, what do we believe versus what do we don't? Uh, What don't we believe? And everything was based on here's what we believe. So the Nicene Creed, like I said, if you've grown up in a, in a more traditional church, if you've grown up in a Catholic church, Episcopalian church, Lutheran church, Presbyterian church, you've probably heard this. If you grew up in a Baptist, Nazarene church, a non-denominational church, probably not. But, but the Protestant faith believes this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, in all things visible and invisible. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten Father before all the worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, blah, blah, blah. We believe he came down from heaven, was made incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. We believe he was a man. We believe he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We believe he suffered. We believe he was buried. We believe on the third day he rose again according to the scripture. We believe he ascended into heaven. We believe he sits at the right hand of the Father. We believe he's going to come again with glory. To judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. We believe, we believe, we believe, we believe. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus was a real man who really lived, who really died, who really rose again, and who really one day you'll be with for eternity? I believe that. Can I prove that? Not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but my faith. I believe in my faith that that is true, that that is real. I believe that creation tells us that life can come from death. In Romans 1.20, I love what Paul said to the Romans. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, things about God, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Paul says, you can look at nature and understand God's power. For instance, if you drive through Lee Summit, Missouri on January 29, 2012, it appears that the grass has died, that all the trees have died, that the flowers have died, And if you look around, everything appears dead. But in April, it won't look dead anymore. Because those things that appear to have died will grow again. You see, within nature, Paul says there are things in nature that prove the power of God. One of those things is that in nature, things die and they grow again. Cut a tree down, and if you don't pull the roots out, it's going to grow again. Jesus even used this illustration in John 12, 24. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... Remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seed. So a tree dies, but you can take those seeds and plant them, and another tree grows. And corn dies, but you can take that corn and plant it, and new corn grows. And creation tells us that things that have died can come back to life and produce life. And humanity follows that that same pattern, so I believe. And I have tremendous comfort and direction in that belief. Say, what if you're wrong? What if I am? I suppose one day I'll find out. But what if you're wrong? What if you don't believe in your wrong? You know, there was a, a famous French uh, mathematician and, um, and uh, physicist and, and philosopher named Blaise Pascal. And he, he's one of the of major philosophy. If you've ever taken a philosophy class, you've studied Blaise Pascal. And Blaise Pascal in philosophy, he, he has a question that's known as Pascal's wager. Um, and the thought basically is this. He says, basically, since God can't be proven or disproven, Um, but only reasoned one way or another, he said you'd be wise to believe because he said the person who believes and is wrong hasn't risked anything, but the person who doesn't believe and is wrong has lost everything. So it doesn't bother me that I believe 
And, and I firmly believe that one day when I leave this body, I'm, I'm going to be with Jesus. I have no doubt about it. And in my own mind, it's been proven. God has proven himself by answered prayer through things. I mean, I could tell you hours of stories of how God has proved himself to me. But I would tell you, trust him. Believe on him. Because when you believe in him, death with the Lord is, is not really a big deal. Death with the Lord is not final. These Christians in Thessalonica who died, they're not gone, Paul says. They're with Jesus. You're going to see him again. Everything is going to be okay. But then he throws something in there that's kind of like a curveball. He said, you know, they've died, they're with Jesus. Maybe one day you'll die and be with Jesus. But if Jesus comes before you die, we'll just all be caught up together in the air and we'll just all go to heaven together. And it was like, uh, uh, can you say that again? What, what, did, what did you say? Like we're just going to float up to heaven? How exactly does that work? And Paul said something interesting. I don't know if you caught it here, but he, but he, uh, he said in verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we're who's still alive, that's us, who are left till the coming of the Lord, are certainly not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. They're already with Jesus. For the Lord himself is going to come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Say, what? So, like, what if that happened right now? Would we all hit the ceiling? Does the ceiling leave? I mean, you know, what if we fall? What if there's an airplane? Um, you know, how is it, what if it's raining? What if it's snowing? How exactly does that work? That, that is a tremendous question that has a lot of unanswered stuff. But Paul begins to explain it briefly in lesson number three. Life with the Lord, death with the Lord, but then he talks about the day of the Lord. So this is really hard to understand, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give it to you here. And he keeps, he keeps going in verses 17, 18, and all the way through uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So we're going we're gonna to read that now. So the dead in Christ, they're with Jesus, and they're going to stay with Jesus. But one day their graves are going to open, and somehow their bodies are going to meet their soul, and everything's going to be good again. Confusing. Don't, don't totally get it, but I believe it. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write you. Say, what does that mean? They're all asking, when's that going to happen? Paul says, I don't know. I don't know. So we might as well not talk about that. For you know very well that the day of the Lord, you need to circle or underline or highlight that phrase or write it down. It's a big phrase found all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction is going to come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they won't escape. But you, brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. So that whether we are awake, still living, or asleep, dead, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, before we do that, I want you to go to verse 18. And I want you to see what Paul says in verse 18 about this day the Lord thought. He starts out by saying, I'm going to tell you something that encourages you. Therefore, encourage each other. Circle the word encourage. Now go to chapter 5, verse 11. He ends it by saying, now that you've heard all this, encourage one another. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Day of the Lord stuff should not be scary, should not worry us. It should encourage us according to Scripture. And this, word, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is used throughout Scripture to describe really three things. And I want you to write these words down. I don't think they're filling the blanks on your notes. Uh, but the day of the Lord always describes an era of judgment. If God is going to come, specifically Old Testament, to judge Israel for something they did, that, that time is known as the day of the Lord. When God moves, that's kind of what that thought is. When God moves in judgment, it's known as an era of judgment. The day of the Lord is also known as the very moment of the end, whenever that happens. What the Mayans say is December 21, 2012. The moment the world ends, that day, specific 24-hour day, is known as the day of the Lord. But then it's also used in Scripture as a period, uh, the period of end times. So in the Old Testament, it's an era of judgment. Uh, in the future, it will be a singular moment, a 24-hour day when it's done. 
but it's also a, a, an extended period of the end times when things begin to go wrong and the Lord begins to come back. The big question is, uh, usually the moment. When is it? What is it? How does it happen? Where will we be? What's, what's going to happen? And, and what's so cool about having not only 1 Thessalonians, but 2 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians was written, and it was sent back to the church. Church read it, and then they sent back to Paul a bunch more questions. And I want you to see one of their first questions. Um, I, I want you to see 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. You should only have to turn a page. Just so you, you know you're not weird by thinking, well, how's this work? Church of Thessalonians wondered the same thing. Paul says, concerning the coming, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by this. That was the one question. They read his big prophecy, and they said, wait a minute. Okay, Paul, we got a question now. Like the lift up in the air thing, like how's that work? Because, uh, you know, we're kind of afraid of that. And like if you're in the shower, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, you know, like we'd be naked in the air. I mean, you know, Lord, how's that work? Right? They had all these questions that we have, and Paul says, listen, all that caught up in the air stuff. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Can't explain it all. Don't worry about it. He said, instead, here's what's more important than that moment. What's more important is being aware that one day there is an expiration of your life one way or another. Being aware of that is important. And being prepared for that is important. Way more important than the event is the awareness of it and the preparedness for it. And he says that in verse 1 of chapter 5 and then in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 5. Um, he says in verse 5, Brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. Those aren't important. Don't worry about the time and the date. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Here is what's important. Brothers, don't be in darkness so that the day will surprise you like a thief. You're sons of the light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night. Or to the darkness. So then don't be like others who are asleep, but be alert and self-controlled. Skip down to verse 8. He tells us exactly what alert and self-controlled mean. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. And he tells us to put on three things. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. And put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Don't worry about the end times, but get ready for it. How do I do that? Three ways. Faith, love, and salvation. Faith, love, and salvation. These three keys will always have you ready. Whether we lift through the ceiling today or whether one day we die and that's how we end up with the Lord, three things will get us ready. Faith, love, and salvation. Faith is what I would call our relationship position with God. I believe, it's the I believe statement. I believe that God is real. I believe that God created me. I believe that God loves me. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus was buried. I believe Jesus rose again. I believe Jesus, like he said in John 14, is preparing me a place in heaven and one day I'll be there. Faith is our relationship position with God. It's just what I believe. Hebrews 11:6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So how do you know I just believe it to be true? And I'm staking everything on it. So faith is our relationship position with God. You need to make sure you're aware that one day this life is going to end. You need to make sure that you're aware that one day you're going to meet God and you want to be on good terms with him when that happens. Love is, would be our relationship position with humanity. We want to make sure in this life to understand that we'll be judged on the way that we love other people and we take care of other people and we have concern about other people. And in John 13, 35, Jesus, right before he went to be crucified, says, by all this, everyone will know, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You will stand out as a Christian because you care about people that no one else cares about. That's the same thought as winning the respect of outsiders. So your faith, your relationship position with God, your love, your relationship position with humanity. But then there's salvation. And salvation is our eternal position. You say, well, when does that come? I don't know when it comes for me or when it comes for you, but I know this, it's coming. Now, I'll be, uh, in six days, I'll be 34. If I live till 84, for me, it might be 50 years. Um, it, it could be before the end of the day for me. 
There's nobody in this room who can guarantee that you'll be alive at midnight tonight. Uh, you know, that, as, as horrible as that is to say, it's just true. There's no one in here that, uh, that knows whether or not we're going to make it to the Super Bowl next Sunday night. And that would be a real shame if we didn't make it that far to, uh, to watch that game. Um, nobody knows, right? So salvation is our eternal position. You say, when? Don't know. Whenever it comes. Well, like, will I die first? I don't know. But if you do, you'll be ready. Well, will I be caught up in the air? Well, I don't know. But if you do, you'll be ready. You see, Paul says when it comes to the end times, the question is not when, but are you ready? Because when doesn't matter. You just need to know it's coming. Just be ready for when it comes. He said if you are, here's what's really interesting in verse 9. He says, here's what you need to know. If you're ready, you need to know God doesn't appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if you die first or if you're just lifted up first. It doesn't matter. What matters is you're going to be with God one day. In Philippians 1.21, Paul said it this way. He was in prison. He thought they might kill him. And he basically said, listen, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If I live, great. One day I'll see Christ. If I die, great. One day I'll see Christ. It reminded me, remember that line in Karate Kid 2? Uh, you know, where right as Daniel's son was getting ready to, to whip the guy at the end of the fight, you know, he had his hand up and he asked him, you know, live or die, man. Uh, you know, and the guy said, die. And he said, wrong. And he honked his nose, honk. You know, it, it's like somebody saying to you spiritually, live or die. And Paul says, don't care. Don't care. I end up in the same place. If I live, I live with Jesus. If I die, I live with Jesus. Live or die. Don't really care. You see, what this frees us up to do is it frees us up to live on mission. It frees us up to live knowing that, hey, we want to get the most out of this life. It frees us up to live knowing that, hey, one day we're going to be with Jesus, so let's make the most of this lifetime. It, uh, it's real reminiscent of, of, um, of that song, Live Like You Were Dying by Tim McGraw. Familiar with that song? Great song, 40-year-old man, finds out he has cancer, and he's going to die. Tim McGraw's dad, Tug McGraw, who used to pitch for the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, died of cancer. Uh, and he, he wrote the song kind of as an ode to his dad, and he talked about a man who lived like he was dying. He knew that he didn't have much time left. So he went ahead and lived life the way that he hoped he would have lived it when he died. And that chorus says, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. We got some country music fans. And I loved deeper. And I spoke sweeter. And I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. He said, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became a friend a friend would like to have. And all of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition. And I went three times that year I lost my dad. I finally read the good book. And I took a good, long, hard look. And what I'd do if I could do it all again. And then I did it. I lived like I was dying. You see, for the Christian, in time shouldn't scare us. They should motivate us to get busy living for God to reach that neighbor we've been praying for, to resolve that broken relationship that, uh, that we've been crying over, to finally read our Bible that you know, we've been waiting forever to do, to love our wife and kids and our husband and spouse a little more. You see, the end times should motivate us just to get ready. One day we're going to be with Jesus. Live or die, we're going to be with Jesus. So let's live this life having the most impact for him that we can possibly know how to have. Life with the Lord, death with the Lord, day of the Lord. It's all good stuff, Paul says, if you're where you need to be spiritually. My question for you is if you don't make it to midnight tonight, will, will you be with Jesus before we turn in to bed tonight? You can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. You can believe in Jesus and put all your faith in him and know that if today were to be the last day you live on this planet Earth, that you would inhale it, on earth, exhale in heaven with Jesus by inviting him to become your Lord, your Savior, your God. And if you've not done that, man, I pray that you'll do that today. Would you bow your heads with me and with every head bowed and every eye closed? If you're in the room today, reflecting on our Bible study in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, reflecting on life with the Lord, death with the Lord, and the day of the Lord, you need to know before you leave this room today if it's in your heart. You need to know that when your time comes, you're going to be with Jesus. And you say, well, Christian, can, it, you know, can, I, can I know that and never, ever, ever have a doubt about it? I believe you can, but it takes faith. 
It's a step of faith to say, well, I can't prove this. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to trust it. And I'm going to let I'm going to let Jesus work to change my life. If you're in here and you don't know, you're not for certain that your life with the Lord and death with the Lord and that the end times for you brings an eternal relationship with Jesus, then I'm going to invite you today to say a prayer, to make God the Lord of your life, to make Jesus your Savior, and to go ahead and resolve once for all because Jesus died and rose again, that one day when you die, you'll raise again and be with Jesus. Say, so how do I do that? You just say a prayer. Say, I don't know how to pray. I'll, I'll say a prayer that you can repeat. You don't even have to say it out loud. You don't have to whisper the words. You can just pray it in your heart and in your mind. The Bible says it's with your heart that you believe, and then later with your mouth you confess and tell people what you've done. But today, if you'd like to settle once for all this question of life with the Lord, death of the Lord, day of the Lord, then just pray this prayer. Just in your own heart right now, God is listening. And if you don't know for certain that you've nailed this down, do it today. Pray this prayer, dear God. I realize that one day, in some way or another, this life is over. And Lord, when that next life begins, I want to be with Jesus. I know my life probably doesn't deserve that. So I'd ask that you would forgive me, that you would overlook the things that I've done, that you would cleanse me from the inside out, and begin to change my life so I could live for you. But God, I pray that you would save me today and give me eternal life, that when my time comes, when my end time comes, that Lord, I might be with you forever and help me to know this and believe it, and have faith that it will happen. Today, I give you my life. I give you control of my eternal life. And I ask you to save me and help me to live for you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, please, nobody looking around out of respect for those around you. If you just prayed that prayer today to nail down for yourself that you're going to go to heaven when you die because you're trusting Jesus with your life, would you just lift your hand up as testimony of it? Christian, I just want you to know that I prayed that. Yes, anyone else? Yes, yes. Lord, thank you for those that today just made a real solid determination that this has been handled. And God, I pray for everyone else in this room uh, that, Lord, we would have our faith in order, our relationship with you, have our love in order, that we really exist to serve others. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that our ambition as a Christian and as a church would be to earn the respect of outsiders who will look at us and say, I really respect the way you care about people. Help that to be the testimony of our people in our church. Change us so that we can change the circumstances of hurting people in this community and around the world. Help us really to make a difference like our mission statement says. Lord, we love you. Pray that you'll be with us as, uh, as we prepare to go this afternoon. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I'm gonna...